0: are listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to Ferrery and equine science with Dr Simon Curtis. Our episode today is sponsored by the Hoof Care Essentials Foundation and their partners Mustad.
1: Sometimes things happen spontaneously. Most of my Podcasts I've booked for weeks or sometimes even months ahead uh, with those people that I interview for these Who for the Horse podcasts. But occasionally you get a spontaneous opportunity, and I had that uh, when Grant Moon contacted me two or three hours before he was due to arrive in my neck of the woods and said, Can we meet up and have a chat? And I thought, Well, we can do more than have a chat. We can record that chat, and that's the point of any podcast. Grant, of course, has been a legendary competitor and clinician, and we probably only touched on that a little bit, but we looked more into his uh, life and how he got to where he is now. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. Well, by pure chance, um, I've met up with Grant Moon about half an hour ago, and of course I have kidnapped him uh, and brought him back to my purpose-built uh, recording studio uh, to record a podcast, which he's uh, kindly agreed to. Hello, Grant. Good evening, Simon. So, we let's get straight into it, and uh, what I want to do is ask you how it all began. When did you become a farrier and how did that happen? Oh, I think it
0: goes back, uh, when did I become a farrier? Formerly was when I left school, but uh, for several years before I left school, I used to spend each of my holidays from boarding school, spending time with Steve Langford in South Wales, pulling shoes and doing anything I could to work with the farrier craft. So it, it goes back that far. And then once I um, left school, I became an apprentice at 16 with Steve Langford and uh, he gave me a great introduction to the to the horseshoeing industry, um, sent me to Hereford College uh, which was the only choice at that time but that was a, a fantastic experience but also he, he was very motivating about competing at barrier competitions so Steve had been on the Welsh team about 10 times and uh, saw the benefits of farriers competing and I got started uh, my first competition uh, a few months after I started as an apprentice.
1: So so tell me this but was any of your family farriers were they in the horse world?
0: We owned ponies my father was a part four registered part four Mm -hmm. so he had a veterinarian sign off to say that he could shoe his own horses and uh, went through the went through several years of shoeing our horses. And once I became an apprentice, he was uh, ready to put his tools down. So it took him forever to become unregistered. That would probably be the funny story, is uh, every year they keep sending him a thing saying, pay your fee or we'll strike you off. And that went on for about seven or eight years of not paying his fee and just assuming he'd be struck off. But uh, anyway, he didn't have to shoe any more horses once I was going.
1: D- different days now, well... I, I didn't want those letters pestering me so when I decided to finish shoeing I let them know and I'm now on the retired list retired so so as you said you went to Hereford uh, that can't have been that far from where you were if you were in South Wales it's just across the border uh-huh. isn't it
0: I uh, um yeah, well yeah I lived in South Wales I was apprenticed in South Wales my parents lived in Ross on Wye oh even some closer the time then. So some of the time I would commute from Ross-on-Wye to Hereford and other times I'd go into his lodging houses in uh, Hereford and uh, hopefully we were we were, we were lucky not unlucky but uh, I'd have to say some of it was pretty um, ah,
1: basic. Basic yes that's a very diplomatic you know, choice.
0: We had some pretty fierce landladies so it was sneak in the windows and sneak out the windows if you wanted to go out.
1: I would have to say when you say Ross-on-Wye, occasionally I've driven along that route from Ross-on-Wye to Hereford. It has to be one of the most beautiful routes in Britain, isn't it?
0: Oh, that whole just Wye that, Valley going up yeah. into Herefordshire. is just gorgeous. I mean, yeah. I, I did enjoy living there. I didn't live there long, but I, I used to enjoy my time at home. Yeah. Um, and then Hereford, beautiful city, cathedral, and just a, a great place to grow up. Um, very rural i went to school not far from there so i i also had um school friends from the hereford hereford city so it, it was a really good time and i i went through the hereford when um one of the original um people that started the college was still there bill watts senior and so he used to do quite a few uh lessons and it was bill watts and graham's Not Graham Sutton. Graham Sutton came a little bit later. Tom Wright. Tom Wright and Tom Williams. They were the the main three. And then Graham joined a little bit later. And towards the end of my uh, time at Hereford, Dave Duckett joined the team. And and Alan Bailey. So some of the greats of the industry of British horseshoeing. You know, multiple competition winners. Very, very... um, proficient farriers, forward thinking. So uh, yeah, I think it was a really good time to
1: be nurtured through the system. Well, well, I remember seeing a picture and it seemed like it was a golden era because it wasn't a very big class. As you said, there's Dave Duckett there, Billy Crothers, Carl Bettison, all in the same class, all of you.
0: All in in the same class. And I I would say Mark Hobby and Arian Morgan, people that have gone on and then
1: yeah, Mark's in Canada.
0: Mark's there? in Canada, made his mark in the industry, pardon the pun. So yeah, we, we went through, we had a group of guys that uh, drove each other, and uh, I would say I think it was one of the groups that got the most sets of honours out of ten at the time. We had about four sets of honours, so we were pretty,
1: I'd say a very motivated group. Yeah, you must have fed off each other and, and, and a certain amount of peer competition. And... Oh,
0: I was competition every day. Yeah. It was fierce competition every day. I mean, and then some of us also went to farrier competitions, and so uh, we, we we when we weren't at college or weren't shoeing, we were we spent a lot of time at competitions. Uh, myself and Billy, we got on the Welsh team as apprentices, and we were very fortunate at that time. Apprentices could tr- compete internationally on farrier teams, even though they couldn't compete in uh, Great Britain. Yeah. So we were in um, the Dublin Horse Show at the International. One of the last, I think it was the last year it was held. And it was was a really good experience. And um, Dave Duckett won, you know, needless to say, he was absolutely at the top of his tree at that time. And other great names, Martin Deakin, Trevor Stern were there, they were winners. Um, Billy and I managed a fourth and a fifth in the individual as apprentices and for me that was one of the things that spurred me on to Want to be better um, It was my first experience meeting Faris from other countries. I saw the Swiss For the first time two-man shoeing which isn't so popular anymore and I Saw the Americans for the first time and they had much better tools than us um, I'd have to say uh, they they, they they did have toolboxes that we were drooling over.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All the gear. Everything. So there was probably clearly there was opportunities to compete, but I think there were less competitions within the UK, weren't there?
0: There were. But
1: but I'm sure they were, you know, prime I think there were ones.
0: plenty of competitions back then. What we have now is a lot of um, competitions that are run out of gas forges, they run out of smaller shows. Some of our big competitions have gone away, like the National Hunter Show in Shrewsbury, and I uh, forget what else, but there was all of the major... East of England, I'm uh, not sure what's yeah, Black, Blackpool, mm-hmm. you know, it yeah. was a big show. And so those, those are, have gone away and been filled in with others, but we, there was a big history of competitions here. I know over the years I've won trophies and in this country we give the trophies back we hold it for one year yeah. and you start looking at the names and the trophies and you know these trophies have been around a hundred years and you could see interesting patterns you'd have someone like Neville, Neville Smith from Staffordshire win the national championships three times then you'd see him at the same time winning the three counties winning the Royal Welsh winning and just being a dominant competitor. And then we you know, go into generations that I was more familiar with. We saw Eric Plant and uh, George Broadhead, which were, they were at the end of their time when I was coming through. And then you had the Calverts and the Ducats and the Deacons and the Gullies that were big characters at that time and, and
1: all very dominant as farriers. So, well, to get this going, how many times have you been world champion? I've won it six times. And how did that happen? I'm not asking you whether you bribed or threatened the judge. What I mean is, how did how, what was the process that got you there to win it this remarkable number of times?
0: Well, I went over the first time, um, a group of us went over, uh, probably, I can't remember, 88, 87. Myself, Carl Bettison, Billy Crothers, Neil Bradbury, we went over together and we... Um, We went to compete we went to see uh, and it was a holiday but it, it, it was a working holiday we were definitely dedicated and uh, it, it, it inspired I would say it inspired us to be better um, we learned to be adaptable and that's probably one of them probably one of the things that i most is adaptable I'm not the best at anything but I'm very adaptable I'm, I'm, I can change very easily And so I went the first time and we placed high. We placed in the top five. I think Billy was fourth or I was fourth and fifth. So our first experience was really good. And then we met people like Bob Marshall and Bruce Daniels and Bob Scrazio, Jay Sharp, what a name to forget. forget. And so meeting those people in Calgary just showed how big a world the farrier industry was people from Europe like Denny Léviard and Magna Delabec you know which become icons at that time and are, are, are still there now you know 40 years later and so once you've been to Calgary once most people keep returning and I, I, I got bitten by the bug. I, you know I come fifth and I come fourth and I come second and you know so it, it, you, 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 you get suckered in you know you, you want to do better. And then I I managed to win it five times, you know, but uh, I'd I'd say it's not because of talent, it's because I'm definitely a person that will out-practice you. Uh, I'm extremely disciplined, and I think that discipline is a big part of it with me. I have a process or a recipe for whatever I do, whether it's punching a nail hole, a single nail hole, it's a recipe, okay? It's a recipe to get the result that I want. And so a recipe for a clip, you know, a clip for me is one of my biggest weaknesses. And I have to go through today, still, the whole construction process of drawing a clip to get what I want. And so I learned to practice in that, in that way. I, I practice with discipline. No point repeating something badly over and over. It was slowing down enough to learn a process so that then you could become more efficient inside the process. So when people see me work, I'm never very fast, but I'm very effective, I'm always one of the first to get to the end. Along the way I can be quite a long way behind, but I catch up very quickly, not by catching up, by just trying to eliminate errors by sticking to my recipe really strictly. And so whether it's shoeing or trimming or whatever I do now, it, it, it's the, the discipline that I have. Uh, I very rarely practice, but I'm always ready because I'll revert to my basics. And my basics to me is that recipe, that, that foundation that I have. And it's really trying to emphasize that to young people is talent is way wasted. Uh, you know, it, it, it's people that have got the most determination i'm determined i never quit you know I, I i don't care how wrong it went i never quit and i know simon's going to ask me about that question about aluminum race plates and bar <laughs> shoes <laughs> in new england i know we're jumping subject but i never quit i went through boxes of aluminum racing plates from a weld in a bar with an oxacetylene that i'd never ever used an oxacetylene court. Torch. But I didn't quit wasting shoes until that bell went. I did not quit. I would there there was probably a 20 or 30 of them on the floor. Because rather than quit, I just keep trying again. Now, but what did you say about
1: practicing? You need to practice the correct technique.
0: I'd never been shown a technique. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I did go and find out after that. Uh, A guy called Jack Miller from Texas showed me how to weld aluminium. So, uh, yeah, I was also one of those. If there was something I couldn't do, I found someone that could do it. And I wasn't too important to ask. You know, even now, I think, you know, it doesn't matter where you are. It's having that ability to just hesitate and then go and ask someone for some help. And there's normally help out there, you know. And it's taking the time to listen.
1: I, I think there's lots of barriers that are surprised by the fact that if they ask somebody, they'll almost always get help. I yeah. bet people say it to you. Oh. I didn't think you'd be like this, Grant. Yeah. And you know, we all like to be asked, don't we? And uh. so we like to give help if we can possibly do it. We give help.
0: I give help, but, you know, and I, I, because I, I, it's passing it forward. Okay, you know, it's okay helping the people who helped you, but a lot of them don't aren't that bothered, you know, about the recognition it's pass it forward, move the skills forward, move the help forward. I think that's really, for me, the karma in life is to move move it forward and help people in the future. And I, I go to a lot of events and quite often get young people, you can see them standing at the side waiting to come and talk to me and it's like, I've got time for those people. One of those people might be the next president of our association, they might be the next FWCF, they might be the next yeah. World champion, and it, so for me, I have time for all of them. You know, uh, you know, they, 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 I don't. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to take the time. You know, sometimes it's one o'clock in the no, morning. No, I've it's seen past you. My bedtime. I, know,
1: I know, I know you are uh, now. So, uh, at what stage did you move to America? Was this, was this after Calgary or in the middle of your, you, you, uh, uh, doing Calgary? That, that it. Time? Was
0: I, I think I'd competed at, at fifth, fourth, and second at Calgary. Then I'd moved to America. And then I managed to win it. I went to Texas to live. Um, I I met some guys in uh, the States. One would be John Marino. And it was interesting. I met Randy Lucard. I met. I I heard about a guy called, um, oh God, um, Don Birdsell, Mm -hmm. hoof hoof mapping graphing. And at that time, there wasn't so much emphasis of the word hoof balance and hoof distortion with the people I was with in it in the UK. I heard these people talking about feet in a different way and it was like I went to find out. I wanted to know more and I I went to compete. Um, I competed in California and met people like Gunnar Gatsky and just a whole great great crowd there and um, probably my claim to fame is I made Jim Poor his first set of uh, stamps, handle stamps, so you know one of the Greatest tool makers. I actually made him his first set of stamps, so that's my claim well, to fame. I didn't know
1: that.
0: <laughs> and so I moved to Texas, and I, I was with Jim and John and a bunch of other guys. And uh, yeah, I was I, competing at the convention and be going to Calgary, and uh, you know, slipping in between horseshoeing, lots of practice. Um, and I, I'll say lots of lots of practice. I was fanatical. If somebody would practice for two hours, I'd practice for four. Uh, you know, I've, if they went out and practice at six in the morning, I went out and practice at four in the morning. And, you know, I carried a full load shoeing horses. I I, I learned how to shoe cutting horses and reining rain, horses because that was the business. And it was learned to shoe those horses. And I, lucky enough, I, I shod world champions in both sports. And so I learned a lot about the, West, the Western sports as well. And have, have, as well as having the background of English riding, you know, jumpers, hunters, dressage. So I I had a a nice time in the States and I traveled the States extensively while competing. And then every year, July would come around and we'd go off to the Calgary Stampede and probably for three months before, I produced barrels of uh, useless horseshoes, you know,
1: now you—you've you've already said about learning to weld aluminium bar shoes, but tell me because I, I know you've told me how you almost cornered the market in—it was it in Texas—and you were just overwhelmed with the amount of work you had.
0: I was overwhelmed with the amount of work, and it was—it was skills that set me apart. At that time, there were very few products to buy. So if you wanted to put something different on a horse's foot, it was make it. And I was very successful at forging aluminum. I um, found the benefits of it with sheared heel horses, quarter cracks that were you know in abundance because I went through that time where you couldn't have too much heel on a horse. So people were stacking heels and they were getting quarter cracks. and. Me, I was coming along and normalizing heel height um, and using heart bars to de-weight heels, and it was just a a fantastic business tool, you know, that I could do it and others couldn't. And at that time, we were probably being paid more then for a pair of aluminum bar shoes than you would today, because nobody could go buy them, you know? I mean, uh, Jim Poor again will tell a, a funny story when I fractured my elbow, he came to work for me for a few days and then he complained the one morning he got really good at welding aluminum bar shoes because he did like 11 pairs. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah, so I did a lot of that. I've always been, I want to sell skill. I never told my clients I won world championships, but I sold skill because I didn't want them to know I was competing very much because that makes them uncertain if you're going to be around when they need you. Yeah. So it's like, okay, that's my private life. It's not important because if they think I'm away every weekend, yeah. they, then they start to they look doubt elsewhere. and they look elsewhere. So I just, I just work longer hours.
1: All right. Now I need to ask you a deep philosophical question because I always do uh, to anybody I'm podcasting. So what I'd like to know is, what do you think is the biggest hurdle that we have to overcome in life?
0: Overcoming life, well i know. well there's several things, is using our time wisely, mm-hmm. um, you know you can't buy it back, once it's gone it's gone, so using our time wisely would be a, a really thing. I've. I'm looking forward to the future. I'm a dinosaur, I'm over the hill, but I'm over the hill waiting for others to catch up because one thing that's (laughs) annoying me right now is the lack of proactivity in our industry. We base what's good on the gold standard or the basics, but we're not quick enough to add additions that we know are correct that will benefit the horse. We wanna try to minimize our shoeing too much rather than doing what we know is right for the horse. I'm working at a vet clinic, and I don't see enough roll toes, very few. I don't see enough mechanics in the shoes. I don't see enough support devices on horses' feet that have totally collapsed. And so for me, it's encouraging that next generation that proactivity is what we should be as farriers. And it's constantly moving forward, and I think for me, Philosophically, I didn't do it quick enough, but I'm glad I'm on a roll now of being proactive and really encouraging people to be proactive.
1: Well, that's great. That was probably you've given the longest answer, but you've sort of covered a bit of the subject I was going to ask you about later. But I want to go back a little bit and ask you about your family because although your father shod horses, you are a hotel owner. And I think, uh, was your father before you, or, or still is, and your my, brother? My father and brother and mother, they owned hotels, Yeah,
0: and uh, that was the, their family business. And they did it very successfully. And about 2004, I realized there had to be an exit strategy, or oh, an alternative strategy to horseshoeing. Not that I needed to take an exit, but I always felt like you needed to be prepared to have an exit. We never know how long our bodies are gonna hold up in in this industry. And I needed something mentally, when I say mentally, to give me comfort that there was something running alongside my farrier business. So my diversity was into a business that my family knew something about, which was hotels. And I bought my first hotel in 2004. And uh, I sold that handsomely um, in 2008,
1: I remember right at the time of the crash. You got I it. Sitting before, with you. Before. Well, yeah, you got.
0: But I remember the worry. But yeah, you, but you yeah, did it absolutely. So, and then uh, bought my second hotel in 2010, which is in Shropshire. It's in a tourist place. It's between Telford, which is a business town, and Shrewsbury, which is a tourist town. It's right off the side of a, a highway where a lot of tourists go down. And so that, that's my second experience in a hotel business. And I think, you know, the important thing is it's for all farriers to have some form of exit strategy as either contributing to significant pensions or to have some sort of business running alongside the farrier business that the farrier business may have to support for some time.
1: I, I'm with you 100%. I would say all the smart farriers that I know, and obviously you're, you're on that list, have another income stream and as you say even if your work has to support it for a while then but that's what they do and it's good advice to all farriers
0: oh absolutely and don't leave it too late you know i left it till i was uh 40 you know just over 40 and i wish i'd started 10 years earlier you know it's always that wish so i i do encourage people when i talk to them now to think about what the alternatives are you don't have to leave but you should have an exit
1: Good advice. All right, let's do three quick fire questions. Straight knife or loop knife?
0: Loop, curved and uh, straight. You aw- uh, aw- shape,
1: shape, shape. of the
0: sole, flat soles oh. I want a flat. Oh right, knife. it's a
1: quick fire question. Oh sorry. Graph. Right. Pick me up. Mustad or capewell?
0: I, I'm a mustad um, nail user. It but it suits my climate. When I lived in Texas, the Cape Well was because they're harder. They're harder, yeah. and the harder feet. Okay. So yeah, it, it, it's environmental.
1: Stoneley or Calgary?
0: Oh, I love them both. I've won both, and uh, yeah, I, I I I wouldn't be able to choose. I'd like I, I, oh. I want I want one more go at both.
1: I was convinced you'd say Calgary because it was more exotic. Maybe because I I'm, it was on my bucket list, and of course I will I ever get the chance to go. Will it be revived? Well, they they
0: did have it. They did have it revived for the year before. Well, COVID year started in uh, September at Spruce Meadows.
1: Yeah,
0: and it, it will be just as big an event. The people that were behind it um, will make it work. So mm. I hope
1: it comes off for the young guys in the industry. So I might still get there to at least stand on the sidelines and oh, cheer.
0: No, 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 just go in, sticking yeah. it. Put your forge in the, put your tongs in the fire.
1: <laughs> All right. So now I want to get on to the fact that uh, uh, relatively recently uh, you have studied and successfully passed uh, the fellowship of the Worship Company of Farriers, and in order to do that you had to do some research, and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that research.
0: Yeah, I was I was very lucky. I um, met Renata Weller some years ago in Rome, and uh, she uh, spent a couple of days as my scribe at the competition, so I had a very effective scribe for the competition. She was uh, very demanding and wanted to know why some scores were above other scores, so I had to justify everything I did. And uh, she kept needling me over probably the next couple of years about doing some research. And it's things that you know you've, you've put off for 40 years and uh, not taking the fellowship and it's it, it's daunting as a senior farrier to step back into education you know I've failed at very little in my career luckily and to, to go and take a, a higher examination after such a long time of not taking examinations was certainly a mm. big one to chew off but I think I had a responsibility to do it, you know. Um, it, it's been, you know, I've been regarded as a leader in industries for a long time, so it was like it was one thing I, I decided that I had to do. And with uh, really good um, supporters, you know, with Renata being one and loads of her team, I went down to the RVC and they gave me the opportunity to reference at the bottom of the foot to the internal structures because we talk a lot about foot mapping and we wanted to see the reliability or the accuracy of hoof mapping to the internal structures and as a, as, as a process I wouldn't be without it. What I do know is it's not accurate you know, it's accurate but not precise, I don't know which way you, you, you term it, but it has a relevance but because of hoof distortion, hoof type, hoof changes, environment, the hoof isn't always where it should be around the hoof caps, around the third phalanx, the navicular bone. It's moving around and we, so we can't predict. But without it, we don't know, we, we cannot shoe every day and place the shoe at least deliberately without some sort of prediction. And so for me, it's the, the trim and then predicting where the structures are, because you might not have, probably won't have x-rays. But at least I'm planning where I'm gonna put my shoe. It's not to the perimeter, it's not set back by accident. So I always, people then confuse that with clip position. And I say, no, the shoe position dictates the clip position. So I've got choices. If I want to set a shoe to the perimeter, I could still use side clips if I need more um, support on a wicker hoof capsule for the shoe to stay in place. But I can also put a toe clip on and put the shoe in the right place to the perimeter. And then I can then go degrees off that and deliberately set it back. Three millimeters, six millimeters, nine millimeters, the full thickness of the hoof wall. But as long as it's a choice that when we set them back, we've done it using reference points. Maybe not totally, ac- totally correct, but we're referencing to how we understand the foot. And so the process of going to the RVC and we CT scanned um, 50 fronts and 50 hinds. And we found out through that process that no, our, our predictions aren't bang on, but they're near, which is good because if we don't use anything, we, you know, the, the, we, we don't know how to trim, we don't know how to manipulate feet. And so the process of working with the veterinarians there, our vet students there, it, it, it was a really interesting process because I'm a good delegator, I'm a good team player and for my research project, I really didn't need to number the feet myself, but bet students, for a few donuts, they'll number all those feet for you.
1: <laughs> Some penniless yeah, yeah, bet student, Yeah, boxes of Krispy Kremes. Uh, I have to ask you, has it changed the way you trim or shoe?
0: I've been using the process of, uh, that process in adapted forms since 1990 when I presented at the Laminitis Laminitis Symposium in Kentucky and so the whole time I've been using that process I've always thought about where the contents what are the contents how am I supporting those contents and yeah you know it's it's become part of me you know you'll see 30 year old pictures of lines on feet and and I can say I've muddled my lines up over the, oh, at different times and wasn't so accurate placing them. I placed them where I wanted them to be placed rather than placing them to st- structures on the outside and then using that structure to predict inside. I moved me lines so I got it in the right got it in a place to suit me. And so we, we, we see a lot a lot of that in pictures on Facebook and that. And then we see for me a lot of impossible you know we see the center of rotation I can't see how we can get 50-50 and let's not talk about shod horses first for me hoof mapping and trimming is first to the foot okay whether it's yeah. barefoot or shod, my referencing is to the foot and then I decide whether to shoe it or not shoe it and then when I put the shoe on I decide where it needs to go and what adaptations I need to give improved mechanics. Uh, uh, and so it, it really it, it's really something that's foot first. And what we see a lot of time is lines drawn arbitrarily, really, I think. With with well, for me, now I've seen the hoof mapping compared to CT scans, which has made me more careful about where i use my landmarks on the outside and then realizing that, that that bone is fluid inside the foot to a degree if i stamp my foot on the concrete my toes move closer to the front of my boot
1: yeah
0: okay so it's not stationary and it, it, it's it's uh, when coming to that realization the coffin bone isn't sta- isn't stationary in there too much leverage at breakover will move that bone inside the foot. Not enough support underneath the frog and the sole will move the bone inside the foot. And so working at the vet clinic, I'm looking at my predictability, then I'm looking at my X-rays, and I'm seeing that there's still a disconnect. It is feet that sometimes will look perfect will have a negative palmer angle because the bottom of the foot is basically dropped out like a hernia. And so it's lifting it back in. And it's thinking about all the ways it can go wrong.
1: So I think your study has changed you, because you said a couple of times how it has made you view it differently. It hasn't made you discard it, and it hasn't made you say, this is the only way. But clearly it it has, uh, as you said, it made you more precise if you're going to use it. Um, and um, should we say, not use it to place lines where they look better? Yeah, as a little fella.
0: Well, yeah.
1: and you, you, you've just mentioned, though, which was almost the final thing I need to come to, is that uh, you have taken on a role, whether it's temporary or, or how semi permanent it is, at quite a large veterinary hospital where um, you go in more than one day a week and you um, shoe cases, whatever's presented to you. And so uh, tell us something about that.
0: Again, a, an interesting uh, process because we we, we, we we have horses that come in and the, the veterinary team there are great. Um, if a horse looks like it needs help with shoeing first, that's gonna improve the situation, we'll, we'll improve the situation with shoeing first before we automatically go to like an MRI. So it, it's like, let's go for the obvious, um, defects are the wrong word, but ob- the, ob- the obvious things that could be helped, you know, which is normally mechanics, break over, support, support to the middle of the foot, I think is probably the the most important thing I'm seeing. And that's what I'm seeing after we MRI them, is is so many of the problems are repetitive. Okay, we got all those palmer heel structures that are so often in our reports. And it comes pretty much to the same way of treating them because I had to, to take a step back a few times. I was thinking that I was using the same processes too often. I was, yeah, repetitive shoeing packages. And it was like, whoa, am I getting suckered in to using the same packages, or is it what the horses need? Mm -hmm. And I probably was in one way, um, but I've had to go back and find different methods for achieving similar things on different types of feet. And the best analogy I've come up with is why a lot of these things are happening, is if somebody puts on a pair of ski boots two sizes too big for them, they're ski boots, they look really nice, they're the highest quality ski boots, but their foot doesn't fit, so they're much more likely to end up with injuries inside that ski boot, ankle problems, feet, whatever. And what I'm seeing is a lot of feet they call it the hoof capsule being the ski boot and the contents aren't in there inserted in there and have strong enough apparatus you know supporting structures <laughs> and so they're getting shod and the contents of the foot are moving around and that's what's caught co- I feel like it's causing a lot of these small injuries that are, are very significant and add it, you know I'm looking at feet and I'm seeing frogs that are descending outside the foot the soles are flattening and it's reinserting the contents of the foot so they're back in there in a more compact way you can manipulate the foot and we use different terminologies i can't give frog pressure i used to say that but we can't pressurize the frog because everything behind it moves digital cushion, lateral cartilage, the paston. So if I was saying that terminology now, I would add, I'm adding positive frog support. Yeah. But then all the other structures are affected right through to the palmar angle inside the foot. And using the frog, we can improve palmar angles. Sometimes we might have to use a device or with it, maybe a wedge pad for a time, but it's still reinserting, re-engaging the foot to function more more properly, you know? While, it, while, it's, while the contents are moving around inside the hoof capsule, I just think they're at a higher chance of injury. And I look at a group of horses, and I think every senior farrier out there has had many cycles of horses in their career. And I look at a cycle as when the horse starts his athletic career. So with, with most riding sports, except racing, it's three, four years old. And by the time they're eight, they're mature. And by the time they're eight, we're now starting to see the feet fail. And what we should be able to do is to look at that next crop of three-year-olds or four-year-olds and look at them and say, I've seen that horse before. I know what it's going to look at four years' time. I know what I'm going to be doing. And now I should be making recommendations to prevent that from happening. And so we just see these repetitive cycles from four to eight, four to nine, and we're not doing enough to stop, break the cycle. And it's not 100% of the horses. If we look at human podiatry, it's only a percentage of people that need arch supports or shims or lifts or have fallen arches. And that podiatry can make athletes in the human humans, uh, sports. Okay? It's no shame to have to wear arch supports if you're playing for a big soccer yeah. team. So what's the difference with horses? That Why can't we say, yes, this is a very expensive horse and it should be bred perfectly and everything should be perfect, but this horse has got fairly long pastons. It's got rounder feet and it's bearing more weight on the heel. The heel is probably going to fail because of that long pastern. So are we going to wait till the heel fails and the, the toe moves forward or are we going to t- reposition our shoe? Are we going to use devices to prevent the uh, the down, downward spiral of that foot distortion. And I, I just see it as cycles, and it, it, it's really trying to get ahead of the cycle. And you know, it's okay them coming to the clinic at 12 years old to be and being broken. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's the wrong time. Yeah. You know, yeah, and we are having good results <coughs> supporting, re, re, getting feet to function better, working with breakover. One of the things that I'm doing a lot right now is, being lucky, you know, at the vet clinic, you watch a significant amount of time on horses being lunged on a hard surface yeah. in a relatively small circle. And what you're seeing is, and I say a relatively small circle, but they're constantly, that inside leg, is landing heel quarter on the outside. And a lot of our injuries are based around that, that, that shoeing problem. And it's like I'm I'm chamfering off all my outside branches. Well, I, I roll the toes or omnidirectional the toes, then all the way around the outside. I'm not thinning the inner the web, but I'm taking the outside edge of the shoe off. And you can see the horse is landing, and it's a gentler landing. The outside leg is landing with the medial side, but it's not landing as hard. It's that inside leg.
1: Yeah, but you're on not the surely you're not showing horses for lunging.
0: We're, no but we're not showing many horses to run straight so when they're, when they're, when they're turning between jumps they're okay, turning That's fair Okay, and yeah. it's what I've learned from watching the lunging has helped me think about what's happening mm. when they're going out into that jumper course they're changing leads they're turning quickly and it's that whenever they're turning it's looking to see how they're landing yeah. and they're landing that lateral heel quarter they don't land flat on a, on a circle uh, and so it's how we can soften that landing to loading part. Okay. And so we can either, so, uh, I would describe it as softening it, rather than it being a more of an acute function. And so those are the things that is adding cheap mechanics to shoes. Okay, um, yeah, uh, and that, that's my, my
1: thought process and then supporting feet. Well, we could carry this conversation on till midnight, Grant. But, as you know, we have a I've nice overrun. Point. No, 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 you're never you're not overrun. It's been great talking to you. Um, I think most people in the ferry world know um, grant the clinician and grant the competitor. But of course, what's come out here is um we've heard about uh you know your your uh, entry into the research world and and how it's um how you could explain that, and you explained it really well to us your experiences as uh, remedial shoeing and so it's been an absolute pleasure you didn't even know we were going to do this till a couple of hours ago did you no but But no
0: trip to newmarket can't be
1: without coming to pay homage
0: to (laughs) one of the greats of horseshoeing here you know it's uh, (laughs) well it's it's going
1: to be a pleasure drinking your gin and tonic well don't worry we've got some good gin and tonic so once again thank you for, for this podcast grant
0: Thank you, Simon.
1: Right, so what did we miss? I don't know. You
0: don't think so? A 30-year relationship with (laughs) Mustad. Okay, well, I think everybody knows that. All right,
1: thanks. Well, we did a really long and in-depth podcast there, and I don't think we really covered his... Uh, relationship with the uh, company Mustad, Um, but it was an opportunity to talk as well about his life today and how he's prepared for, uh, shall we say, his non-shoeing times, although he is still gainfully shoeing, Um, and uh, I think sometimes he's shoeing more horses than he wants to at the moment. I was also pleased that uh, he touched on gaining his fellowship with the Worshipful Company of Farriers. And you know, it doesn't get easier as you get older, even somebody with grants, great skills, those skills do sometimes start to drop off. And, and the knowledge and additional skills in lecturing and studying is something that he, he had to put himself through to get that. So that was really good. Sometimes, you know, we have to take a spontaneous opportunity and make the best of it.
0: We'd like to thank Hoof Care Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com and for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.